0: Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales.
1: Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me as always is Vincent M. Wales, and we have a wonderful guest with us. A gentleman by the name of Mitch Gluck is joining us. Mitch, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much.
1: We are glad to have you here.
2: Um, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing information with you and and talking about a really important topic.
3: Mitch is the Assistant Hospital Administrator at the San Diego County Psychiatric Hospital, which is interesting enough, but he also is an individual with lived experience in a family where mental illness has certainly taken a toll. So let's talk about uh, your brother. Your brother had a particular mental illness, correct? Correct.
2: That's true. I have four brothers, three brothers all together currently, but one of them developed mental illness, uh, specifically schizophrenia, uh, in his late teens, 19, although the family didn't really recognize it until he was 20 or 21. And unfortunately, like a lot of individuals who suffer from mental illness, he struggled for the rest of his adult life. Uh, he refused treatment, lived homeless a majority of all those years, would come home every once in a while unannounced and could stay for a day, a week, a month, just to whatever his tolerance level was. And then he would take off and nobody would hear from him. And this went on for you know, 20, 25 years wow. um, of his life. How um, did that
3: affect your family, knowing that your brother was homeless much of the time?
2: Well, I'd have to say the whole ordeal of his illness had a huge impact on the family. In the beginning, I was already living in Arizona. They were all living in California. And the first signs that he had illness was they overheard him talking to people in his room who did not exist, acting kind of in a a bizarre way. It came on very insidiously. Um, so I think the initial symptoms, behaviors were even ignored or, or perhaps explained away. But as his illness got worse and worse, what a lot of families experience is, what my family experience is, seeking help, not understanding the system of care, uh, dealing with a lot of bureaucracy, dealing with a lot of laws that don't make sense or not understanding the laws, not knowing how to navigate you know, the services and, and the legal system while pleading with my brother to get help uh, to no avail. And when he would go and disappear, live on the streets and so forth, my family, we were petrified that the next phone call would be somebody calling us to tell us that they had found him dead or something along those lines. And uh, the stress was tremendous on everybody. And it was very hard for the family to even stay cohesive. Everybody had a different perspective on what needed to be done. Everybody reached a frustration level at different points. It caused a lot of conflict within the family. My father, at some point, after years of dealing with the legal system and restraining orders, et cetera, et cetera, felt that he just needed to back away. There was no more he could do while at the same time, My mother, who is extremely religious, and very, very devoted to her religion, did not want to give up, continued to go out searching for him in her car. His existence became her whole life, um, even though he could have been gone for a year or more before she would ever see him again, um, because she was afraid that if she didn't go looking for him, he would end up dead. And the conflicts within the family grew even uh deeper over the course of time in terms of what should we do what can be done um and disagreements over that the stress the anger the shame the guilt you know the reflective thinking uh, particularly on my parents part in terms of what did they do that may have contributed to this was it their fault Uh, should they have seen the signs earlier could they have done something differently And then the brothers feeling helpless as well, in particular myself and one other brother, one other brother who is an attorney, trying to help resolve it through some legal means. Um, And myself, given that my field is mental health, behavioral health, uh, being a professional in the field, and being at a loss for what to do, trying everything I could think of as I understood the field and as I understood mental health and mental illness, and still not having any success.
3: Mitch, this was all taking place in, what,
2: the 80s? Yeah, This was taking place late. I'd say his first onset was probably the very latter part of the 80s, but the family really became aware of it for the first time, like in 1990,
3: 1991,
2: okay. uh, when my father and and mother overheard him talking to himself about wanting to kill them in their sleep. And that's when they called me and and they were in tears on the phone, scared and not knowing what was going on. And that was the first clue I had that there was even a problem.
3: So this went on for, as you said, something like 20 years or more, and it didn't end well.
2: No, it didn't. It wasn't going well all along. And you know, after this many years, there was kind of a resignation, I think, within the family that uh, nothing was going to get better for my brother unless he broke the law somehow and ended up involuntarily in treatment. But otherwise, I think they became, as we all did, just kind of used to a pattern You and after so many years of his showing up sporadically infrequently, and not talking to anybody, staying at the house, but not coming out of the bedroom you know, for however many days and then disappearing. And they always kept their door open for him, you know, Mm -hmm. certainly with hope that something could change. Back in October of 2008, he came home and he actually stayed for several months. Um, Appeared to everybody that uh, he had stabilized a bit that he was not in an acute phase of his illness we had all seen over the years going from an acute phase to it going into remission and then back into an acute phase again. But he seemed to be somewhat in remission where the symptoms were uh, subdued. Next thing we knew, one night in uh, January of 2009, uh, my brother and I get a phone call from the police that they had found our parents. We had, we had actually put out a call to them because we couldn't find our parents, to add a little bit to the story. We had left messages at their home and uh, they weren't calling us back and so forth. So my brother called a friend of his with the police department saying, you know, our parents seem to be gone. This is unusual. Could you ping their cell phone for us and uh, see if you can locate where they are? And in the meantime, the brother that contacted the police drove over to their house here in San Diego. And by the time he got there, he found... Uh, the street cordoned off with police cars and the medical examiners. Our friend on the police force had actually driven out to their house right away, knowing about our brother who's mentally ill and suspecting something was wrong. And they found our parents had been killed in their sleep. As it turned out, our brother, who was mentally ill, is the one that killed them.
1: I'm very, very sorry to hear that. I, I imagine that would be very devastating on any family, not only for the death of your parents, but knowing that another family member was involved and a family member that you had been worried about for so long. What happened to your brother as a result of this?
2: Well, initially he disappeared. He killed them in their sleep and then took off. And uh, the U.S. Marshals finally found him in Mexico, but he, he had been missing for slightly over a month before they located him. And they brought him back, you know, obviously arrested him and put him in jail. And then he went through an enormously lengthy legal process, which is, you know, from our having gone through it with him, we understand is more the norm, unfortunately, for a lot of families in particular uh, that have to endure such a thing. Uh, It took three years. Uh, for the legal process to finally pay, play out. But in the beginning, he was transferred to one of the state hospitals to be evaluated to determine whether or not he was mentally competent to stand trial. That took, uh, you know, approximately six to nine months before he was determined able to stand trial and was returned to San Diego. Um, and then through a series of, you know, lengthy, legal steps, uh, preliminary hearings, postponement of hearings and so forth. It took another two years before it resolved with a, a plea agreement on his part. It was a roller coaster ride for, for the rest of us, as well as I can imagine for our brother. One of the most fascinating aspects of it is that once he was hospitalized at the state hospital, that was really the first time he received treatment, medication. And by the time we saw him, uh, which was about two years later, which was the first time we spoke to him, it was uh, surreal because when we talked to him, he was exactly as we had remembered him prior to the onset of his illness. And it was simply because he had been in treatment for several years. Which had made all the difference. Um, and one of the one of the very sad aspects to the whole story is it was very obvious how different things could have been had he ever been in treatment to begin with. He ended up plea, making a plea agreement and being incarcerated in prison here in San Diego. And I forgot exactly how long the sentence was, but it was going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of. Uh, Forty years. It was he was convicted of second degree murder, but he ended up uh, dying from cancer while he was in prison.
1: When did he realize what he had done?
2: He realized it the night that he killed them. He realized what he had done, although in his, you know, having a, an acute psychotic episode at the time, he perceived, uh, according to him, he perceived that he was really trying to protect himself. And an uncle that lived in the house, he perceived that uh, our parents were trying to kill him and the uncle. And in his his way of perceiving the world and in his way of, of having delusional thinking, etc., that goes along with the psychotic episode, it made perfect sense to him to do what he did. Uh, when we first talked to him several years later, uh, while he was Still in jail here locally, you know, going through the legal process, an incredibly emotional experience to have the conversation with him. We did not know what to expect, because the last time we had had what I consider a rational conversation with him had been 25 plus years earlier. Um, and as I said, when we did talk to him, we were just astounded by how normal he appeared. He, he appeared to be symptom-free. His thinking was as sound as anyone else's thinking, as sound as my thinking. And we talked to him about that. We asked him, and he cried. I mean, he was devastated by what had happened and what he had done. And he talked about how he used the uh, the movie as an analogy of Groundhog Day. That first thing that occurred to him every morning that he woke up was what he had done to his parents. And he he struggled with that. He struggled with that, but he also struggled with his fears that everybody in the family hated him and would have nothing to do with him. And so we discovered that he was as nervous in seeing us that day in jail as we were nervous about seeing him.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com.
3: One of the things that stands out about what you've just described, and of course I've seen it so many other times here in California, is that your brother was found competent to stand trial, but the truth of the matter is that at the time of the crime itself, he clearly was not competent. Yeah, there's this disconnect in the legal system that I just don't understand.
2: Well, to be honest with you, it was fully explained to us, and I don't understand it on some emotional level at least the The uh, definition of competency to stand trial is not the same thing as saying that the person is no longer mentally ill or is unable to competently make decisions for themselves. The basic litmus test to stand trial is, can you understand the proceedings against you, and can you assist your attorney? in your defense, but you can still have delusional thinking. You can still be acutely ill and deemed competent. Now, I've not really looked up the history of this, but I understand that the laws in California changed dramatically after the city councilman in San Francisco was killed over what was called the Twinkie defense, and that there was significant outrage. And so legislation was passed to further define competency to stand trial, which took the definition further away from how you would perhaps define competency if you were a clinical person. He was clearly not, not competent at the time that he killed our parents, but from a legal standpoint, uh, was he an imminent risk? The legal system said no, and that he knew he was not an imminent risk. Could he develop a plan? Yes, he did develop a plan. Could he develop a plan to escape? Yes, he could. And so from a legal perspective, that pretty much canceled out even the potential of a mental health defense um, as a part of his, his attorney's strategy. So they did not pursue a mental health defense.
3: I'm just speechless because that still makes no sense to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it and it's it's hard. It's hard. You know, my being on both sides of the fence, my being a, a professional in the field, dealing with this frequently, dealing with the unfortunate part of seeing a lot of people who suffer from acute mental illness and, and frequently concomitant substance abuse, which just exacerbates it, and watching them come into the hospital on an involuntary basis, they are in tremendous pain and they are extremely disabled, cannot be held accountable for their behavior, their, their actions, their thought process. It's truly an illness and it's an illness beyond their control. And even those who do get treatment, sometimes it can take a long time before treatment has a significant impact in a positive way. The legal system and the clinical systems in some ways run parallel, but in a lot of ways they are far apart. And that's just one of the many challenges for family members. You know, I understood the system much better than any of my family members did, and yet I felt just as exasperated and frustrated as everybody else in the family in terms of why can't we get something done. You know, the number of times, for instance, that the police were called out to the house to come out and with the hope that they would put him on a what's called A fifty, one fifty and an involuntary status and take him into the hospital to force treatment. And the number of times that the police came out took report but felt that he did not quite meet the criteria as they understood it for an involuntary hold. And he was very bright, very articulate. And even when he was acutely ill, he had a way of knowing exactly what to say to get himself out of those situations. And uh, it it led to a lot of depression in our family besides the ongoing fear and the stress. And again, the even the conflict between family members in terms of knowing what to do. And I think ultimately, even a fear that my parents had that uh, should this continue on for years, what will become of him after they have passed? Who will take care of him? Who will watch out for him? And uh, I'd say the last 20, 25 years of their lives, their marriage, uh, were spent in a great deal of pain. I imagine so. In
1: the wake of all of this, how has the rest of your family come together?
2: It's It's been an amazing journey. It's been an amazing journey, you know. Needless to say, right after the death of our parents, I'd say to, you know, to varying degrees, the remaining brothers all f- felt anger, probably some hatred, some immediate resolution that we never wanted to talk to him again. And we had to go through our own healing, even though the legal process is painfully slow. And I'm sure very painful for families. You know, it gave me uh, insight into families that just experienced the, like the, the murder of a child, and somebody's been brought to uh, justice, and how long they have to wait until they feel that there is some closure for them, so that they can move on emotionally. This took us three years, but in our case, I think there was a silver lining that it took three years because. It gave us time to go through the parts that we had to go through without it being rushed. It gave us time to work in terms of our own feelings, finding some common ground, helping each other as well through it. And then when when we first interacted with our brother several years later, and he was still in jail, we got very much in touch with his humanity his fears. And and we realized if we hadn't already, because I had one brother who just had a real struggle up to the end, but we realized that, you know, here is our brother. We lost our brother back at the very beginning of the illness. That's when we started to lose him. We lost our parents, obviously, but then because of the event, we lost our brother all over again. And when we spoke at his hearing, you know, we acknowledged that, that we not only lost our our parents, but we we lost him, and and we felt very badly for what he was going through. He was a victim of the illness, just like anybody else, Um, as much a victim as our parents were a victim of it. And I'd say that the experience and connecting with him again when he was well enough to be able to have a relationship with us. That was instrumental in bringing the healing back together. You know, I have one brother who lives out of state, but the rest of us actually traveled up to the hospice, uh, which is the, the prison hospice up in Vacaville. We went up every week and spent the weekend up there with him uh, while he was in hospice. And we were with him when he died and i think that was really important to him i mean, he felt from all of our visits that we weren't abandoning him that we still loved him as a brother we forgave him and i think that brought tremendous relief to the pain he must have been feeling from the realization of what happened uh, but it also brought a lot of relief from the pain we were feeling too and so there was a, a healing for all of us in the end and uh I have to say, looking back on it, uh, I don't think it could have worked out any better under the circumstances than it did.
3: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us, Mitch. I know it's it can't be easy to talk about.
2: You know, it, it's not easy. And there are many times where I, you know, in, in my quiet moments, I will reflect back on it and I will think about the 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 loss and how easily it could have been avoided, you know, at least in my own mind, how easily it could have been avoided. But it gives me an incredible amount of understanding that I don't think I, I quite had as a professional. I intellectually knew what people were going through, but having experienced it gives me uh, an understanding on a whole different level and empathy on a whole different level for what, Unfortunately, many families go through and I think, you know, in our mental health delivery system, in the culture that we we live in and how we deal with mental illness and behavioral health issues, I think frequently the families are the victims that kind of get lost in the shuffle. They become secondary victims at best and in a lot of cases, they should be the primary patient, the primary client, because they need help. They need a lot of help. And the system is more designed to focus on the person who has the illness. And if there are resources available, then on the family. And I think a lot of families, and if you talk about families, particularly families that may be of, of certain ethnic backgrounds or cultural backgrounds, where their perception of mental illness, behavioral health, and so forth is partially influenced by the beliefs that they grew up with, I think it's very hard for them to get help. And I think uh, they kind of fall through the cracks. And I think that's a, a huge loss.
1: You're absolutely right on on many things. One of the things that makes being a mental health advocate so difficult, and I've, as someone who lives with bipolar disorder, I've been a mental health advocate. Well, I was forced to be a mental health advocate the the day that I was diagnosed. But when I started my advocacy, you know, I really had this, you know, patient first mentality. And I really saw everything from my perspective. And by my perspective, I mean, you know, white middle class. And the longer I advocated, the more I started to realize that it's different based on your socioeconomic status. It's different depending on your uh, gender. It's different based on your race. It's whether or not you have a family. Is the family important? And the The subject of forced treatment or uh, involuntary hospitalization is always going to be a hot button topic for our community. And I remember at one point I felt very strongly that under no circumstances should forced treatment ever be utilized. Uh, And then of course I, I had to back off of that quickly when I started to see more and more evidence of its necessity. And I always follow up and say, you know, we're, we're not doing a good job of determining when forced treatment is necessary, but we've done an absolutely abysmal job of determining when forced treatment needs to end. It, it's, it's a mess. It's, it's all a mess. And unfortunately, stories like yours and so many other ones are really the, the thing that's rising to the top. And people are paying the price for inaction. And I'd really like to see something done.
2: Well, I, I appreciate uh, everything you've, you've said. You know, the um, there are so many ethical issues in this whole story and in the in the field itself that are hard to sort out. It's a much more complex subject than meets the eye. And certainly, if you've had a personal experience, you know, sometimes it's even harder to sit back and look at all the ethical issues and and see both sides of the story. You know, I have. I've been a strong advocate for decades, you know, for individuals who experience, you know, some sort of uh, human needs and and through my work in healthcare in particular, but the the issue of voluntary um or in, involuntary hospitalization or involuntary treatment, you know, the one of the balancing acts where uh proponents on both sides have a lot of valid things to say is You know, the need for involuntary treatment may be the humane thing to do. It may reduce risk to the individual and to others around them and so forth. But on the other hand, to what extent do we violate individual rights by forcing involuntary? And where do you draw the line between the rights that the individual has versus the rights of the, the larger group? And unfortunately, people, I think, rush to judgment and see it sometimes more as a black and white issue when in fact, um, it is so gray, it is so gray that it's, it's even by the most compassionate advocates, it's a tough, complex discussion to have. But I do agree with you that there is a tremendous inequality in the way um, healthcare, not just mental health, but healthcare um, is distributed in our society. You know, we have a long ways to go to do a much better job. That's all I can say. And unfortunately, it, it will go well beyond my lifetime in terms of working out these complexities. Sad but true.
1: Sad but true. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We
2: really, really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. I, you know, I, one of the ways in which I have healed from the whole experience is by speaking to others and and hopefully providing some education and some thought for people who are experiencing it or may experience it or who are working with people who experience it. I everybody, you know, most everybody can speak to knowing somebody who suffers from mental illness or substance abuse and, you know, family stress, uh, related to that. And I teach at Cal state and every year they ask me to do a seminar for the faculty around this issue. And I go, and I've been doing it for what five years now, and what surprises me still is the amount of emotion that it, that it exudes from the people who have come to listen. And, uh, and then people come up to me and tell me their personal stories. And it's probably one of the most gratifying experiences I have. You know, it, I still feel every year, like, you really want me to come and talk? I'm not sure I have that much to offer, but I'd be glad to come and talk. And then at the end of it, after talking to people, individually and so forth. Um, it's just an incredible feeling. And so it's been very helpful and being a part of your show um, is an opportunity I really appreciate, so thank you. Thank you to
1: everyone for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private, online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash central. We will see everybody next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohol, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com.